Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 129 of the Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about essential action. That is the character's scene goal. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. I have one quick note before we get started, and it's that I'll be raising my rates starting July 1st for new clients. Um, I have a couple of spots left at the old rates, and so if you've been on the fence or you're interested in booking some time with me, now is a great time to do that. If you have any questions or you want to sign up, you can do that by emailing me at hello at writership.com. I'm here with my good friend, Anne Holly, who's StoryGrid certified editor and the author of the recently published historical love story, Restraint, which if you've been around for any time at all, you'll know is Pride and Prejudice meets Brokeback Mountain. To find out more about Anne, visit www.annholly.net. Anne, welcome. Thank you so much. Hi, Leslie. It's nice to be here. Hi, it's so good to be to have you. Um, and today we're talking about a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Yes, um, and I'm super excited to have you to to dive into essential action. Essential action, my favorite thing. So I actually brought a quote for today. And uh, I know I'm taking you off guard a little there, but uh, I'll read it and then I'll expect you to discuss it very intelligently. I'll do my best. (laughs) Okay. So this is from Marina Calderon and Maggie Lloyd-Williams. What we say and what we think or mean don't always correspond. Take the most straightforward non sequitur. Would you like a coffee? You could say that the speaker's objective is simply, I want to offer you a drink. But more likely, there are a whole host of deeper impulses between the two individuals operating underneath the surface. The objective is more likely to be along the lines of, I want you to be relaxed. I want to show you I'm a caring person. I want to stay the night and so on. And that's from Action, the Actors, the Saurus. So what do you think about that, Anne? Well, that little book, I tell you, that is my favorite writing and editing tool, or certainly one of them. I got it out for this discussion, and I flipped through it, and I recommend it to all of my clients and other writers, so I'm sure you'll put a link to where they can get a hold of this cool little book. The key ideas in it are what you just quoted, that we think what we think and what we say don't always correspond. And there's this other great little quote that I wanted to pull out of the, the, the uh, intro to the book, which is in each unit of the text, you must decide what your character wants and how your character sets out to get it. It's incredibly simple, but 
I have found that when a writer masters that concept, everything else in the text begins to snap into place, which is why this makes such a great topic to discuss today. Yeah, it's real. It's one of those, I, I don't like the term game changer, but <laughs> it, it's, it tends to be overused. But this is a real game changer. It, when you analyze the essential action in a scene, which is what we're talking about, um, then, as you say, things fall into place. And it seems like magic. But before we dive into more of that and how it works, we should talk a little bit about what essential action is and what literal action is. So when a character wants something, they pursue it. They face obstacles and they may have to change their tactics, but their actions should make sense given what they want and their goal shouldn't change except for very specific reasons. So within a scene, within the whole story, each character should act consistently with their scene goal and their story goal. And they should be aligned, though a character might adopt different tactics within a scene to try to accomplish it. So we talked, we wrote an article about essential action where we talk, we distinguished it from literal action, which is really straightforward. It's just what's happening on the surface. What are the characters literally doing? They might be having a conversation over lunch, practicing sword stances, or hiding from velociraptors. But the <laughs> essential action is the point of view character's goal in the scene, though you could certainly track it for other characters within the scene. So it's what they want. So... And how this operates is the inciting incident within the scene upsets their status quo. It causes them to have a desire. And from that desire comes a goal. And that goal is the essential action. So the literal action, again, is what's happening on the surface. And then the essential action is what's happening below the surface. It's the subtext within the scene. And... Um Another way to look at it is is the uh, the strategy is the character's what the character wants in the scene mm -hmm. or throughout the story, and that as you use the word tactic, the tactic is how they set about trying to get it from moment to moment in the scene. Right. So why is this important, Anne? Because if you don't know why your characters are doing what they're doing, and that. Why is not tied to a central core story idea, your core idea, you don't have a story. It doesn't make sense. It won't hold together and there's no through line. Yeah. So when, if a character's actions seem random, you know, we can't understand why they're doing what they do. The story doesn't really hold together. Life is random. And sometimes we might think that life, well, if, if something happens in real life, then it can go in a story because stories are about people, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I swear I'm going to get a tattoo. 
a big one that on my arm where I can see it that says, stories are not real life and characters are not real people. Yeah. Yeah. Stories have a job to do and their job is to make sense of real life. And that mm -hmm. means taking a whole bunch of stuff out and only leaving in what works for the story, for the message that you want to get across. Right. Okay. Well, then let's look at how this operates in our submission for today. Today's submission is a short story called Madeline by Nathaniel Patterson. It's a horror story of about 3,900 words, and it is not yet published as of when we're recording this episode. Thanks so much, Nathaniel. We really appreciate your sharing your story with us. Darkness filled the woods surrounding the little cabin. Only the faint flicker of oil lamps, candles, and the cooking fire threw any light out of the windows. Light which became swallowed up by the deep October night of West Virginia forest. The little cabin and its dilapidated sheds and barn, the only mark of humanity in the endless trees of the Appalachian Mountains. Jane Reddy stood over her cooking pot, a thin broth simmering over the wood fire. Her tired blue eyes watching the mixture cook, her hands shaking from fear as they stirred the pot and brushed a graying strand of brown hair away from her face. How can this be? Two days ago, she was just fine. Jane's voice cracking under the strain of the doctor's prognosis. I know what caused it, Esther Henfield croaked from the corner of the dark little room. Her ancient face cracked and fissured from 87 years of living in the mountains. Mother, please, I need to speak to the doctor now. Strength returned to Jane's voice, if only momentarily. Your daughter is very ill. I have never seen such an affliction. Dr. William Prescott looked grave. The young doctor recently arrived from Beckley. He rode two hours in the dead of night to attend to young Madeline. She's cursed, marked by the dang devil himself, Esther stood. Ain't no medicine known to man which could cure her. Mama... She's ill, madam, not cursed. She has some rare affliction, a disease. Strain hid behind Prescott's blue eyes. Curse. Madeline is a cursed child, just like all the children in this family. The old woman began to work herself up, standing and gripping her gnarled ash cane as she made her way across the cabin to the doctor. The flickering oil lamps casting spectacular shadows across her time-withered face. This family ain't cursed, Mama, Jane attempted to stand between her mother and the doctor. This family ain't cursed. Mrs. Henfield, please, 
You're upsetting your daughter. She has enough on her mind without you filling it with ghost stories. She don't need no medicine. My granddaughter is cursed. Esther stood before Jane, staring around her daughter and up into the eyes of Prescott. Prescott sighed and rubbed his eyes. The images of the young Madeline, filthy with sores on her ankles and neck. The nine-year-old girl, hair in a messy clump, locked in the hogshed. The thought burned into his mind's eye, chilled the man to his core. Mrs. Henfield, your granddaughter is tied to a post in a pig pen. She is a danger to herself. We need to look past your hilltop fears and do all that we can to save this child. Esther stepped back and stepped over toward the herbs drying in one of the cabin windows. Her mouth gripped tight in anger, her eyes never leaving the doctor. Mrs. Reddy, I beg of you to listen to reason. We need to look at this problem logically. Ain't no logic in a curse, doctor, Esther interrupted. The doctor ignored the old woman. We need to look at Madeline's symptoms. All we need to control her is a little blood. The room fell silent as both mother and doctor looked at Esther. Before a word could be spoken, a single loud bang racked through the little cabin. That came from the hogshed, Jane whispered. She must have come free from her bindings. Prescott looked out the window in the direction of the noise. She'll need to feed Jane. You mean eat, Mama. Little girls eat. I mean feed. Take the blood of a yard bird. Soak it in bread. Madam, we will not be indulging in your backwoods fixatives. Only medicine can save your granddaughter. What do you suggest, doctor? We don't have much money. Not since my husband passed. Her eyes danced between her mother and the doctor, filled with dread over losing a third child, losing her last child. You got six yard birds out there right now. They don't cost no money. Soak up some bread with the blood and slip it under the hogshed door. Prescott looked long and hard at the old woman, her ancient eyes filled with spark and firelight. Mrs. Reddy, there is no known cure for whatever is afflicting your daughter. I have never seen anything like her condition before, nor have I read a description of her set of symptoms. The safest course of action would be to treat her symptoms and hope for a positive change. She needs to feed, so feed her, Esther shouted. She has the cursed hunger. A second, louder bang rang from the darkness. The entire party jumped, startled by both the volume and the force of a heavy slat wood door being hit by a nine-year-old girl. 
She hadn't touched no food, Mama. Prescott walked over to his medical bag, filled with various brown bottles of drugs, tinctures, and sedatives. I'll give her some laudanum. It will put her to sleep for a few hours. If she keeps banging on that door, she could break a bone, or worse. Madeline don't feel no pain now, doctor. She's cursed and gone to the other side. Really, madam, the other side. Well, how would you bring her back then? Please indulge my curiosity. The doctor took a shining chrome syringe from his bag and opened one of his brown bottles. He took a small sip, slowing his quaking hands before drawing a good volume through the needle. I'm going to end the reading there um, in the interest of time, but you can review the entire story in the show notes. Um, What you need to know for the rest of our discussion is that things go bad pretty quickly. And in the end, Jane kills the doctor and Esther because they both believe that Madeline has to die. So those are the essential facts (laughs) that you need to know about the submission. So thanks again, Nathaniel, for trusting us with your story. Okay, so if we're going to look for the essential action in the scene, as opposed to the literal action, or look at that, we... We begin by analyzing the scene, and the first question we ask is is an easy one. What are the characters literally doing in the scene? So here, if we break that down, Jane, Esther, and Dr. Prescott are debating about what to do about Madeline, who's Jane's daughter. While Madeline, of course, is madly banging against the door of the shed. Oh, sure. There's that. (laughs) That's the noise in the scene. Right. So they're debating, and that's like the, and Madeline is uh, expressing her displeasure with being confined in the hog shed. Yes. Okay. So that's our literal action. And then, when we're analyzing a scene in this way, we would look at what's the essential action of what the characters are doing. So in when we're looking at this submission, it's, it's hard for us to be specific because it's not completely clear who the POV character is. And we'll get into that more a little later. So it's not clear you know, who is trying to convince whom, or if everybody's trying to convince everyone. Generally, we could say that Dr. Prescott and Esther are each trying to convince Jane of their opinion, but Jane dismisses her mother's claims and that Madeline is cursed, at least for a while. Um, And the doctor seems to make decisions on his own, you know, throughout the scene. So ultimately, it's not clear whose essential action, whose scene goal is operating here. 
Right. The All three characters appear to want to be in charge of the situation at different times, and they want their choice for Madeline to be carried out. What's less clear to me is why. Um, I get the feeling that Esther, the grandmother, has a motivation about validating her belief in, in curses and in the supernatural or in the old ways, you might say. Um, Jane seems to have called the doctor um, the, we don't know how she's done that, but it seems pretty clear why that she wants modern medicine to help her sick daughter. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Prescott's words and actions throughout the scene, almost to the, well, to the turning point in the scene, seem to arise from a desire to to be a good representative of the medical science that he is a believer in. And he seems to, you know, want, be very motivated to put down the old ways, the old superstitions. He's the modern doctor. And so there's, there's some sense of what each one of them wants. I think you can find it in the scene. And I think that's worth, you know, sort of bearing in mind. Now, whether they carry out, whether their essential actions throughout the scene reflect those wants, we'll, we'll go on to find out. So one of the things, too, that when we're looking at essential action is we want to boil down the character's goal, scene goal, into a pithy saying or, you know, a short phrase that that gets at that subtext. And that's one of the reasons why we really like the book that we that we uh, talked about earlier, because it does boil those things down because they're little sayings like to put someone on the right path, to bring someone down to earth, to burst someone's buzz bubble. And so that's what we mean when we talk about being specific. And since we're not really clear who's, you know, whose point of view we are viewing the scene from, we can't definitively say that. Right. So after we look at the literal and essential action, we also want to look at the which life value has changed for one or more of the characters. So in other words, because story is about change, and that comes down to the level of the scene, not just over the course of the full story, what status or condition changes from the beginning to the end? So if we're looking at this as a whole unit, when the story begins, Dr. Prescott and Esther are alive. And by the end, they are not. <laughs> Mad- <laughs> pretty pretty final pretty, there. A big change. Yeah. Not to put too fine a point on that. But okay, so then what other characters have a change? Well, Madeline is imprisoned at the beginning. And by the end, she's free. Jane appears to go from hoping for a rational medical cure for Madeline and then appears to accept that her daughter faces a fate worse than death, that she is this monster. And we could also say that Jane goes from being someone who is free of the same affliction to chances are she's going to be in the same position soon. Yeah, she seems to be go from healthy to infected also. Yeah, that she's infected at the end. It seems fairly clear. Yeah. 
And Esther, of course, doesn't really change internally. I mean, her state changes from alive to dead, but she she changes the least. She maintains the same position throughout the entire scene, the story. Right. Right. So then if we, you know, so once we kind of look at all, these are, this is a collection of all the life values that have changed in the scene and then we want to look at, well, which one should I put in the story grid spreadsheet? And if you're not spreadsheeting according to the story grid method, that's fine. The, the essence of this is which life value has the closest relationship to the global genre or the primary genre, the primary story that's happening. So we, have, we can cheat a little because the author told us that this is a horror story and the facts seem to bear that out. Um, So the typical life value continuum in a horror story is life to death and then beyond to a fate worse than death. So we're not clear which character is the protagonist. It seems, you know, like our deductions are that Jane is because she makes a decision, but we're not certain of that. And the point of view makes that a little murky. So we, um, so we would want to look at whose life value is driving the story. Right. If it were Dr. Prescott, if if he were the protagonist, which in some ways he kind of feels like he is because he represents rationality or whatever, um, he seems to shift at some point from trying to save Madeline to apparently agreeing that death would be a mercy. He he decides that, you know, the slow poison that Esther is proposing uh, is worse than the, a quick death with a gun. And that takes him to damnation because no doctor would propose a death. With, lightly anyway, certainly, you know, he, he damns himself there. So it's kind of for a doctor, the fate worse than death. But if he's not the protagonist, then that's uh, not what we should be looking at for the, the life value change of the whole story. And we can't tell. Right. So after we look at those four things for items, then we would start looking at what we call the five commandments of storytelling. And they're just the parts of the scene and we're using the story grid language, but you can kind of get what's, you know, like how this works if you're not a story grid uh, initiate, so to speak. (laughs) So first we look at what's the inciting incident. And as I mentioned before, the inciting incident is something that throws the protagonist or point of view character out of their status quo, out of balance. So this is pretty tricky here. It's it's not clear to me because it feels like we're starting in the middle of a reaction, in the middle of Jane's reaction to something that's already happened. She says, how can this be? Two days ago, she was just fine. So this makes me wonder if the inciting incident for this scene is something that's not included in the story. Well, that was my feeling. that, And, and that's not always a fault. Sometimes you can have an inciting incident take place off the page or off the screen. If it's um, particularly if what incites the change is some sort of minor action, like 
the example um, of the the restaurant scene in Marathon Men. It's a scene that we studied together. It's the inciting incident is somebody invited somebody to, out to lunch. We don't really need, need to see that happen. It's implied. But this is just one scene in a very long and thrilling movie. Here we have a whole story in a scene, basically, and we need the inciting incident, I think, to to appear in some sense on the page, preferably towards the beginning of the story. And it doesn't seem to be there. Right. So if we were to look at, you know, some possibilities, what would you say are some possibilities for an inciting incident that's happening off the page? Well, my first thought was that it's when Jane calls the doctor or when the doctor arrives. Um, It depends on what we define as the central conflict in the story. If the central conflict in the story is between the old ways and the new ways, um, Esther's sort of superstitious or mystical, magical ways and the doctor's modern scientific ways, then it's when the doctor arrives or when Jane calls the doctor. Unfortunately, we have no idea how she would have called the doctor because Mm -hmm. we have been given a scene where it apparently there would be no telephone. And so he spent two hours getting there and we have no idea how he found out that he has a patient there. It's a little murky. And my feeling is that if that, if that was the author's idea of the inciting incident, he kind of has slid over that little difficulty by just leaving it out. Um, another one would be when Esther says, oh, I t- a couple days ago, I took her out to the Briars. I took Madeline, the girl, out to the Briars. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it's very clear in the text that it means something big and important and that it, it may have been what incited the actual illness. So if the conflict in the story is about the illness itself or her madness or her curse, whatever it is, then the inciting incident for that would have been the choice on Esther's part to expose her to the sickness or the curse. And that would have been the going out to the briars and the lilacs. Right. And the, you know, because the inciting incident is what kicks off the action of a story or a scene, as you say, you can leave it out, but you still need to make it clear because the inciting the inciting incident gives rise to the desire, which gives rise to the character's goal and everything else flows from that. So that's what we're talking about in, at the level of a scene, the essential action flows from that goal. So it needs to be revealed at some point. Right. Right. So then after the inciting incident, we have, progressive complications, and a turning point. That's what we would look for next. So progressive complications are those obstacles to the character's goal. When they try to pursue it, things get in the way. And then that goes to, you know, event. ultimately there is a complication that forces a dilemma, and we call that the turning point. So without a clear inciting incident here, we don't know what, you know, we're not sure who the point of view character is and what their goal is. So we're not sure which obstacles are standing in the way of the goal. So that's kind of, you know, that's a 
that's a point that that you would want to clarify. To my eye, and I, this is a, a a little revelation that I'll pass along to people. I judge the turning point in a scene by gut, and I mention this not as a professional editorial ta- tactic, but as what your reader is going to do. And mm-hmm. so my gut feeling, when I think, okay, where did this scene turn? Where did the, like, if it was a movie, the music change? I just do, I do all this by gut. And to me, it's when the doctor changes his mind about modern medicine and begins to think, he, he, he puts his hand to his gun in his holster and says, mm-hmm. I will not allow you to poison that girl, basically saying, I will kill her with a gun because it would be more merciful. That, to me, felt like the turning point. And that's fine. It was a very turny turning point. But it's not clear if the doctor is the POV character and the protagonist in this scene, then that's the turning point. He's he's changing from an ethical modern doctor to he's been convinced by Esther's arguments that this girl is cursed and she needs to die. Mm-hmm. But that's not clear that that's what the scene is intended to be about. Yeah. And even in that case, it seems like that would be, it seems like that would be a decision, right? That he's making based on some other trigger like there would be some turning point that would cause him to have the dilemma that it was the bluebells right yeah so the bluebells then would be the turning point if the doctor is the point of view character now if the if jane is the point of view character then the doctor's action is seems you know does seem to be the turning point that causes jane to think oh you know, to even consider, I'm going to have to kill these two, <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, so at that point, but it's really, you know, it's kind of interesting that there are these multiple, um, multiple possibilities right. about right. it. And it's, it's more useful you know, in terms of the reader experience for it to be clear. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting case study for essential action and looking at that sort of thing. Right. So then the, the next question is the crisis question, which we kind of allude to a little bit above. So the turning point forces this dilemma which is either a best bad choice, so two bad things, got to choose one of them, or a choice between irreconcilable goods where you can have something that's good, a choice that's good for you but bad for someone else, or it can also be two good things that you and you can't have both. So Jane has a dilemma, but because we're not sure, you know, the these other steps that come earlier, we're not absolutely certain of we can't say whether this is in alignment with the intention for the whole scene or the whole story right and this brings us to the point of view problem that is fairly uh, outstanding in this story 
That is that there is no clear point of view. It shifts among all three characters. Uh, Madeline is the only character whose point of view we don't get and who actually is never really on stage till the final moment. So it's hard for the reader to know whose thoughts and actions are central to the purpose of the story. So it, it forces us as readers to think, okay, if it's Dr. Prescott, if he's the point of view character and or the protagonist, he he faces a best bad choice of either kill one patient and damn himself as a medical doctor or else risk letting this thing that he believes is a contagion, a disease, escape into the community and kill more people. Right. And we can read both a want and a need there that makes us feel like he's he's the protagonist. He's more complex. He has both a want and a need. He wants to help his patient and he needs to represent, you know, real medicine in this back backwoods place. And so the fact that he doesn't have the definitive choice in action at the climax, that, that he kind of that gets handed to Jane, feels kind of disappointing or unsatisfying to me. Yeah, Jane, Jane is the one who takes the definitive action in the end. And so it makes me think, well, maybe the point of view should be with her throughout the story. But it's her choices, are her reasons for her choices and decisions still aren't clear. But if it is Jane, then her the choice that she faces is either to let her daughter live free but as a monster mm-hmm. at the expense of the other two lives who she kills and probably the whole neighborhood and maybe right. herself, yeah. or else shoot her own daughter. I mean, terrible, mm-hmm. best bad choice there. Yeah. Right. So that's the dilemma. And then the climax, which is the next thing that we would look at, is the decision plus the action that the character takes in furtherance of that decision. So as you know, we've talked about the doctor and Jane make decisions, but we don't have a logical thread to follow from the beginning because of the inciting incident confusion, because of the point of view confusion. So we don't know exactly what it is they want. Now, for secondary characters, we don't, the reader doesn't need to know exactly what a character wants initially, what their goal is. But by the end of the story, it should be apparent. And, you know, I hate to, I hate to say absolutes in, in, in things dealing with writing, but I really think that the writer should have a clear idea. And the writer here may have a clear idea that just didn't make it onto the page. So I wanna I wanna be fair there for sure. That but if we we need an a clear idea because the essential and literal action should flow from what it is the character wants. So the decision and motive here are not clear to us on the page. And so looking at that would be, you know, it would make the story stronger. Yes, it would. And if it were, if the scene were set up more clearly in Jane's point of view, with Jane as the clear protagonist, then the climactic action of Jane shooting her own mother and the doctor um, in order to free her daughter, that would make sense. It would be all Jane's story. Her motive all along is about saving her daughter one way or another. And we know that pretty clearly throughout the whole story, which we actually don't the way it's written. 
I mean, we know that Jane has lost other children. Naturally, she wants to save her child. That's kind of a goes without saying human trait. Right. Um, and the only thing that would make her interesting in that mm-hmm. sense would be if she was like a psychopath who didn't care to save her own child. Otherwise, it's kind of a given and we need a little more. Um, the fact that she's lost to other children helps us understand why she wants to save this one, but we don't we don't really need that. I mean, we don't need a reason for a mother to want to save her child. So there has to be a little more. And since we're not in her point of view throughout, we can't really tell what it is. So she, up to the point where she gets out the gun and surprises us by shooting not her daughter, but the doctor and her mother, the, her only actions are to either, like she sides with the doctor against her mother and it's not quite clear what changes her mind and makes her turn against both of them. Right. Right. So that leaves us then with the resolution. And and here Jane kills the doctor and her mother. She releases Madeline and also is exposed to the to the curse or contagion through the bite, but, and this is a, it's, to me, it's a surprising ending. You know, it's, I wasn't necessarily, I was certainly expecting Jane would protest and, but, but for her to shoot the other two, um, I think that, as you say, it's, it's surprising, but it doesn't quite feel inevitable that there could be some with, you know, if we if it were we were firmly in Jane's point of view, you could set this up so that we got well. Of course, she had to do that, but then at the same time, it's also unfolds in a surprising way. Right, because surprising by itself would be oh, a UFO landed and took her off to outer. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you could make a surprising ending, but it's the inevitable that's. That's the key to making a surprising ending work. And the inevitability, I don't feel, was adequately set up. Yeah, I think that there and, – and part of that, again, is, the, is that through line from, the, from a clear inciting incident through it. Now, to be, to be clear, <laughs> I'm using that word a lot today, but there are a lot of really great elements that – in in this and it wouldn't i think clearing up the you know whose story this is and clearing up the point of view and making those the steps in the, you know the events within this scene more clear would make it really strong and interesting because the surprise yeah we do have the surprise that is not, you know, we're not looking for. So I think there's a lot of, there's, a, I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about something that comes from essentially flows from the inciting incident and where that's not clear, then it tends to affect the rest throughout the scene. Um, and so it's not to say that this is, you know, that there's no hope, you know, that there's a lot in here. It just needs to be tightened and clarified. Oh, absolutely. It's a wonderfully creepy story and and, <laughs> yeah. and horrifying and really interesting. I had, here are some questions I'm going to pose and maybe the author can think about 
about these. Um, the resolution seems to be that the daughter escapes into the woods, leaving her mother infected. Right. But what does that resolve? Okay, so that's my first question. Did Esther want her granddaughter to join the ranks of cursed mountain folk? Is there some connection between Esther's actions in exposing the granddaughter to the Briars and the Civil War piece that is mentioned, like the soldiers coming back from the Civil War. Uh, does Jane want her daughter to join the ranks because she lets her go in the end off to join the ranks of the cursed? Um, why D does Jane want her daughter to kill or infect the neighbors? Uh, presumably there are some other people around. Why did she feel she needed to kill both the doctor and her mother? So it's not clear why, you know, what drives that final action, that surprising action comes from a whole series of questions that I came up with after I finished reading. And after I was done being surprised, all those questions occurred to me. And something for the author to think about, knowing the answers to it. They, all those answers don't have to be on the page. But right now, I feel like those are not even questions that the author has thought of the answers to yet. I could be wrong, but certainly there's not a hint of a reason in the structure of the story and the choice of point of view. So it's hard for me to feel much more than sort of a, a surprise at the ending that fades kind of quickly as those questions begin to occur to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say so. So if we were to, you know, if we were to try to kind of guess at some essential actions that could be operating in the scene, what kinds of things would you point to as possibilities? Well, I go back to the doctor again because I can read his essential action a little more clearly, I think, than the other characters. I would say um, that he, he wants to heal Madeline, he wants to heal her. Um, in the little book action for actors that we were talking about earlier, um, you, you select a single verb to really distill the essential action of a character in a, not in a whole scene, but even just in a beat. So he wants to heal her. He wants to diagnose her. He wants to relieve Jane or comfort or console Jane. We see that happening in the story. Um, he, he, also wants to uphold, he needs to uphold his, his medical beliefs and he needs to win. He wants to win out over Esther. So he, the grandmother, and he, so he wants to defeat her. He wants to overpower or persuade her. So I can see his wants and his mm -hmm. essential actions um, a little more clearly than I can see Esther's. Jane wants to save her remaining child, obviously, perfectly natural. Um, but I don't get what's going on between her and her mother. So I'm a little harder pressed to find those essential actions for her. She just sort of argues. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you, there, there is, there is a lot, there's, there is subtext to the relationship between Jane and Esther, but yes. I'm, I'm not really sure what's going on there. And that's not a fatal flaw in, in any story. There can be, you know, something going on that that's not clear, but, but again, by the end of the story, we should understand what their goal is, what they were really aiming for now. And as you say, well, Jane obviously wants to save her child, but what is she weighing 
against that in terms right. of the with her mother. Right. And- because she has to, in some way or another, she has to put down or turn away from or lose her mother. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that they disagree on the old ways. I mean, as you say, there's a lot here. There's a lot in subtext. I think the author could really just sit down and pull some of this stuff up to his own conscious clarity and then go back over the scene and and just rephrase things and pick the point of view so that these hinted at wants and needs are clearer. Right. To the reader on the page, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and as you, I think you said earlier, um, you don't want it on the nose. You don't want it on the page. Well, my want is to blah, blah, blah. That, that's not how you do it. Right. And he's come really close in his hints of, you know, the argument between mother and daughter, the argument between mother and doctor, uh, the hints of, I mean, I think he has a very light hand in a lot of ways, and it's wonderful. Um, I think that he could deploy that a little more strongly that light hand of just the hint and the 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 the, un, the conversation that we didn't hear we never heard the beginning of because it's been going on for years you know not a lot of exposition it's nice that way it's it's well done that way and i don't think it would take much to really bring out these essential actions that would drive this whole story to its surprising but inevitable conclusion instead of just the surprising conclusion right and you know I've often thought that essential action would be a great way to outline a story if you want a kind of minimalist outlining tool to figure out, right, what does the character want? And you know, we talk about in the post um, that we wrote that essential action isn't a isn't a literary editing tool it's an acting tool we haven't really talked about that just yet but but it's because the character or the actor is performing the essential act or excuse me the actor is performing the literal action that's in this you know in the script but how do they act it where does the you know, where does the intention come from? And the t- intention comes from identifying that essential action. So as the quote said earlier, you can have the same action with different, uh, the same literal action with different essential action. That is, you could have, you know, you could ask someone if you they want coffee and have a whole vast array of possibilities for the, you know, what the character hopes to gain from that. But once you know what the character hopes to gain, then you can give them actions to try to, you know, the literal action, the stuff that's happening on the surface to, as they try to do that, and it makes more sense. It like, it provides a filter for everything the character does in the scene. And I think it's hard to, it's kind of hard to describe, but you will know it once you see it. And there's a great example 
that we have um, in the article that we talked about. Yeah, the scene from The Fugitive, it's, it's a sterling example of essential action. And the scene is linked right there. You can just watch it. It takes, it's about a two-minute scene. And it's fantastic for clarifying the concept of essential action. And I was going to say one thing that, I mean, yes, it is an actor's tool. And so how do writers use it? That's a really good question. And it's something that I think you and I are still, you know, working out some details on. But let's take the coffee scene again, the coffee offer. Mm-hmm. It, this is not a good writing example. Okay. I'm not like advocating that you use adverbs in your speech tags because we don't like that. But let's just say, would you like a cup of coffee? She said, coldly, seductively, warmly, quickly. I mean, you know, you don't have to use offhandedly, offhandedly <laughs> in, with a tone right. of boredom. I mean, you wouldn't use necessarily good writing, wouldn't use those kinds of adverbs. Uh, you can use them once in a while, but you know, most, most advice says to avoid them. But that's the idea. The actor thinks, okay, is this seductive or is this cold? What else is going on in the scene? What has happened before? What's coming afterwards? How do I offer that cup of coffee? And as a writer of characters, you are like the actor of the role in a way. You decide how to play that. And right. your very subtle word choices, and it doesn't have to be right in that sentence or right in that action, but you have to know from beat to beat and from scene to scene what your characters want and how right. they're going to go about getting it or try to get it or aim for it. Right, which brings us back around to the to the point about the action that you know that your character takes in the scene should not be random but how do you decide what that is well when you understand what they're trying to achieve and you have a pretty good idea of who that character is then you can you know understand well how would the, you know how would character x go about getting this thing that they want and it just it as I say, it acts as a filter so that you can make sure that they what so you can make sure that what they're doing makes good sense in the story because people in real life are all over the place. They, you know, take random actions and they're inconsistent. In fact, I think it's interesting because when a real life person is very laser focused and has a, what we would call an essential action and they don't veer from it, they're extraordinary. And we often say that they're larger than life. And so that, that's interesting because most of the time people are just a hot mess. Right. <laughs> or, you know, making decisions all over willy nilly. But you know, as, as you so clearly said earlier, Anne, the stories aren't real life and characters aren't real people. We've got to take the boring bits out right. and create a 
structure that imposes order and meaning. And I will say, in this story, the author has done a good job of stripping out non-essential, I shouldn't use that term, but but unnecessary actions and words. Right. Um, there are There's some repetition, and it could use a little cleanup, but... You don't see, like, for example, you, Esther says she took her out, took uh, Madeline out to the briars and the lilacs. But we don't get Esther picking flowers. We don't get Esther cooking. I mean, we get Jane cooking. That's okay. That's a scene set, you know, setting a scene. But right. we don't see, I mean, this is the example that I always use. It's a little crass, but you don't show us your characters going to the bathroom because it's not relevant to the story. Mm-hmm. And you got to yeah, equate we, like almost everything else with going to the bathroom. It's probably not part of the story. There's very few things that are part of the story. Mm-hmm. And you have to pick those things. Right. Right. That's a great point. <laughs> now, there are some stories where going to the bathroom might be relevant to the story. I don't mean to say never, but rarely, let's just say. I notice it every time, too. I'm like, oh, interesting. Is that important? Yeah. So, okay. So for our editorial mission this week, we want you to identify the literal and essential action. by. So take a scene from your favorite book or a, a movie or a show. It doesn't matter because it's all story. And sometimes it's really easy to see in, you know, on film. Um, But take your favorite story and identify the, you know, what's going on on the surface and then what's happening underneath. And Anne made this point earlier. If you do nothing else about this, go and watch the scene in our post from The Fugitive and then read our analysis. And I want to add, download the essential action cheat sheet that's there because it will, it'll help you get started. By looking at this and by looking at your favorite stories or, you know, scenes there, it'll help you understand the action that's on the surface and the subtext and what's, what's happening beneath. So once you can see it clearly in someone else's work, do this in a scene from your work in progress and ask yourself, how is the essential action of the scene connected to the character's story goal? So if they're not related, you want to revise accordingly, figure out what the essential action should be and make sure that the literal action is in connection with that and their overall goal. So a reminder, you can go to writership.com slash episodes to sign up and get these editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. So that'll do it for our discussion today. And thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate your insights and on essential action and the submission today. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I always love coming on the writership. Yeah. And so, and if anybody wants to find Anne, again, you can do that at www.annholly.net. As we wrap things up, I want to say a big thank you to our Patreon crew, which covers the hosting and technical support for the show, as well as our time in preparing the episodes. We'll have new Patreon rewards coming in July, so stay tuned for those. 
For more information about supporting the podcast through Patreon, visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support in other ways, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you want to have your five pages reviewed on the podcast, visit writership.com slash submissions. That's it for episode 129. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast.